Wouldn't it be great if we could all live in the woods? Wildlife right outside the window, maybe a creek meandering through. Maybe a lake or a pond where we could catch fish or go swimming on a hot summer day. Birds singing. Frogs croaking. And crickets lulling us to sleep at night. Unfortunately, that's not realistic for most of us. But even though we can't all live in the woods, that doesn't mean that we can't have a little bit of wildness right in our own backyards. And that's what I'll be talking about today. I'm your host, Tim the Nature Nerd O'Hara, and this is the Dispatches from the Forest podcast. start off by defining what I mean by backyard. Not only can we not all live in the woods, but if you live, say, in an apartment in the city, you may not have an actual physical backyard. Now, granted, some of what I'll be talking about today applies to actual physical yards around houses, but some of it can be applied to backyard in a broader sense, like any park or green space or vacant lot that's reasonably close to where you live. Maybe you can walk or bike to it, or maybe you have to make a short drive, but the important thing is that it's accessible to you. And as it turns out, access to green space is extremely important, not only for physical health, providing places for people to recreate in addition to reducing noise and air pollution, but there are mental health and other benefits that might surprise you. For example, researchers in Denmark found that childhood exposure to green spaces reduced the risk of developing anxiety, depression, and substance abuse later in life by up to 55%. In fact, that same study found that exposure to green space was comparable to family history and parental age in predicting mental health outcomes. Other studies have shown that access to natural environments can help reduce the symptoms of ADHD in children, increase productivity in the workplace, and decrease stress and violence. Vegetated apartment complexes in Chicago have a lower crime rate and less litter. Interestingly, just having a view of trees has health benefits. Hospital studies have shown that patients with a view of a small stand of trees outside their window had fewer post-surgical complications, used less pain medication, and had an 8.5% shorter stay in the hospital compared to patients who only had a view of an adjacent building. That's pretty amazing stuff. So what all this means is that your backyard, whether it's really yours or a shared community space, is really, really important. Even Henry David Thoreau knew this way back in 1854 when he wrote Walden. To quote Mr. Thoreau, We need the tonic of wildness. We can never have enough of nature. So let's talk about some things that you can do to increase the wild in your green space. Now you might be thinking that you just have a suburban yard. There's nothing too wild about it. But that's not entirely true. Maybe you don't have deer or turkeys or big animals, but if you adjust your perception of what constitutes wildlife, you'll probably find that your suburban yard is teeming with wildlife. 
How many different species of bird can you find in your yard? How many butterflies and bees visit your flowers? Are there toads or snakes under your deck or shed? Growing up in Illinois, I remember finding toads in the window wells of our neighborhood. Us kids would catch them, keep them for a day or two, before releasing them back where we found them. Look under a large rock or paving stone and you might find worms and pill bugs and millipedes. When you really start to look, you might be surprised what you'll find. I recently found crayfish chimneys in the ditch in front of my house, in spite of the fact that there's not a permanent water source anywhere nearby. Come to find out, they dig down to the groundwater and then come out at night to hunt insects. Who knew? That brings us to the obvious question of what can we do to make our backyards more wildlife friendly? Now, all animals have four basic needs food, water, shelter, and space. For most animals, your backyard is just a small part of their territory. You don't need to provide all four of these needs in a limited space. But if you can provide for at least one, you stand a stronger chance of seeing something wild. Birds are the easiest to attract to your yard. Hang a feeder, fill it with seed, and the birds will find it. This is something many apartment dwellers can do too. Hang it off your balcony or get a feeder that suction cups to the window. If you build it, they will come. You might be surprised just how fast this new food source will be discovered, and you don't need a fancy, expensive seed mix. I found that most common backyard birds like cardinals, sparrows, chickadees, and nuthatches prefer the cheapest seed mix I can buy. I tried a more expensive mix once, and the birds pretty much ignored it. Now, believe it or not, there's actually some debate about putting out bird feeders. Some avid birders feel that feeding any wild animal, including birds, is not healthy for the animal. Because feeders put birds in closer proximity to one another than they might otherwise get, it is possible for them to pass diseases to each other. Opponents of feeders encourage the planting of native flowers and trees to attract birds to your yard. If you do choose to hang a feeder, and yes, I have one, the best way to reduce the risk to the birds is to clean and disinfect your feeder regularly and pay attention to local alerts from experts. They may recommend taking down feeders if a particular pathogen is going around. Now, a common myth about bird feeders is that if you start feeding the birds, you have to continue indefinitely or the birds will starve, and that's not the case. Birds are perfectly capable of finding another food source if you don't fill your feeder. Personally, I think that having a bird feeder out does more good than harm. It's a way for people, especially those in more urban areas, to have the chance to observe and appreciate wild birds, which will make them more likely to take an interest in protecting the birds and the ecosystems they depend on. Hummingbirds, of course, require a hummingbird feeder and or a good planting of specific flowers. I love seeing hummingbirds at my feeder. The nice thing about hummingbirds is that making nectar at home is super easy. Mix a quarter cup of sugar with one cup of water and bring it to a boil until all the sugar dissolves. Let it cool and pour it into your feeder. Easy peasy. Don't put red food coloring in it. It's not necessary and it's not good for the hummingbirds. Store any extra in the fridge and change it every few days in hot weather. Planting certain flowers can help attract hummingbirds too, not to mention add some beauty to your yard. As with any planting, I encourage you to find those that are native to your region. Local garden centers and gardening groups can help point you in the right direction. So a feeder or native plants or both covers one need. Water is relatively easy. 
A bird bath provides a water source, although again, you need to make sure to keep it clean. My sister got one of those solar-powered fountains for her bird bath, and she tells me that the birds absolutely love it. So even if you don't have a feeder in your yard, a good water source is also likely to bring in birds. If you put up some birdhouses, you give cavity nesting birds like bluebirds, wrens, tree swallows, and tufted titmice a place to nest. Different birds prefer different sized openings and locations, and there may be other factors to take into account. For example, in my role as a Virginia Master Naturalist, I've recently been helping the Virginia Bluebird Society monitor bluebird boxes at a local park. Bluebird boxes are generally built and erected in a very specific way. The box itself is mounted on a pole about five feet off the ground with a baffle underneath it. The baffle helps prevent predators, primarily snakes, from climbing up the pole and accessing the box. Since snakes can drop down from other vegetation onto the top of the box, the best locations are near trees and bushes, but don't have branches hanging over them. The boxes need small trees or bushes not too far from the entrance, though, so when the babies fledge, they can easily get to a protected place. In addition, there's often a wire cage that sticks out from the box opening. This is meant to prevent cats and raccoons from getting into the box and prevent larger birds like, say, European starlings from using the box. Although other birds, like sparrows, titmice, or tree swallows, are also attracted to bluebird boxes. Many people even put a camera inside so they can monitor the box remotely. With any birdhouse, some regular maintenance is required if you want to keep them occupied. Bluebirds usually have two to three clutches of eggs per year, so after the young have left the nest, it's best to clean out the old nest, disposing of it away from the box to avoid attracting predators. They'll build a new nest, even on top of the old one if it's not removed, but cleaning out the old nest helps prevent a buildup of feces, mites, or any other pathogen that could negatively impact the birds. My point here is that if you want to maximize the chance of having a birdhouse occupied, you need to do some research to see what type of house you might want to put up and where best to locate it. And even if you don't put up a birdhouse, keep a sharp eye out and you might be surprised. We've had robins nest on our porch, hawks nesting in the woods behind our house, and a Carolina wren who nested in a potted plant right outside our front door. Now there's a good chance, even in the suburbs, that animals other than birds will show up to your yard. In most places, raccoons, possums, skunks, squirrels, and even foxes or deer or groundhogs wouldn't be too surprising. With the possible exception of getting a squirrel feeder and filling it with unsalted peanuts in the shell, I do not recommend intentionally feeding any other type of wildlife. Leaving food out for animals can cause them to become desensitized to humans, which can lead to bites or other problems, the end result of which is often the death of the animal, either intentionally or unintentionally. People usually think they're helping those poor animals, but they're causing more harm than good. Another common mistake is handling baby animals found in your yard. Many animals, like deer and rabbits, will leave their young safely hidden and return several times during the day to nurse them. People often think that if they find babies, they've been abandoned and they attempt to help, which again causes more harm than good. This is also a reason to keep pet cats inside. I recently had a discussion with someone in my favorite place to correct misinformation, the Nextdoor app, who told me that they put a bell on their cat's collar to prevent it from killing birds. 
that's great, but it doesn't help baby rabbits or recently fledged birds that can't fly well enough to escape. For more on the dangers of free-roaming cats, listen to episode 19. But it's not just birds and cute fuzzy animals that you can help out in the way you manage your yard. One of the most important things you can do is manage your yard for the benefit of native pollinators. Now I'll admit it, I'm not a lawn guy. I broke down and mowed for the first time this spring and did all I could to avoid the clusters of flowers like Robin's Plantain, Meadow Buttercups, and Clover that grow wild in my backyard. But if you don't want to do that, planting native flowers and shrubs is an easy way to landscape your home in a way that benefits native pollinators. One of my favorite quotes is from Ray Bradbury's Dandelion Wine. Talking about dandelions, he says, Pride of lions in the yard, stare and they burn a hole in your retina. A common flower, a weed that no one sees, yes, but for us, a noble thing, the dandelion. Not only do I not care if there are dandelions in my yard, I like them there, although many people consider them a noxious weed. I've watched both honeybees and bumblebees visiting my dandelions. Aside from providing food for bees and making wine with them, dandelions are edible. I read recently that having dandelions is a sign that your soil is calcium deficient and that frequently, if left alone, the dandelions correct this deficiency on their own. In fact, their taproot pulls calcium up from deeper in the soil, which makes their leaves rich in calcium, along with vitamins C and K, and the minerals manganese, potassium, and iron. Given a choice, I would establish a clover lawn. Clover lawns are actually becoming more popular. Clover has a number of benefits. It stays greener, requires less mowing, and it's drought tolerant. Not only that, but because clover is a legume like soybeans, it fixes nitrogen in the soil, which means that it doesn't require fertilizer, and it's pollinator-friendly. Even Scott's, you know, the company that sells grass seeds and lawn fertilizer, sells a clover lawn seed mix and touts the benefits of a clover lawn. If you need more convincing than that, take off your shoes and socks and walk barefoot through a patch of clover and see how good it feels. In the spirit of easing up on that lawn maintenance, I'm giving you permission to not rake your leaves in the fall. Leaving leaves on the ground helps biodiversity, as there are many native insects and even some small critters such as frogs and toads that will hibernate under the leaves during the winter. As well, it's a food source for birds, such as robins, since they'll often flip leaves over to look for something to eat, like insects. Another benefit is to the lawn itself. Leaves provide natural mulch when they break down, which fosters soil development. Instead of raking, use that time to go for a hike and connect with nature. Leave your leaves until after the last frost in the spring, then just mulch them up with the lawnmower. I guarantee you that nobody ever got to the end of their life and said, I wish I had raked more leaves. Now last August here at Dispatches HQ, we had a big storm. Now, there's disagreement on whether it was a tornado, a straight-line storm, or a microburst, but the end result was the same. We had many large trees uprooted, and many more just straight-out snapped off about 20 to 30 feet off the ground. Another storm in January deposited heavy snow, which had a similar impact. While I cleared what was necessary, unlike other people, I will leave the broken standing trees in place. Do they look pretty? No. But standing dead trees are an important part of the ecosystem. 
One tree's bad luck is another tree's opportunity. We have a clearing behind Dispatch's HQ. Technically, it's the leach field for our septic system. Prior to the storm in August, the backside of that clearing was thickly wooded, largely hiding the neighboring houses. After the storm, much to the dismay of my children, it was much more open. Until those large trees were gone, I didn't realize how many small trees were growing in that space. Those small trees were fighting for every photon of sunlight they could get, trying to grow in the shade of what was probably their parents. Now they have a chance to reach their potential. In addition, those broken trees will attract a variety of insects like beetles and carpenter bees, which in turn will attract woodpeckers to eat them and, in the process, enlarge the holes they created. And those holes will be used by cavity-nesting birds like tufted titmice and screech owls. And as those holes begin to rot and get bigger, other animals will move in, like squirrels and raccoons and possums and larger owls that will use them to nest in. Bats will roost under the bark as it starts to peel up. Wood ducks and bluebirds and tree swallows all use tree cavities for nesting. Once you understand how important standing dead trees are to wildlife, you start to see them less as an eyesore and more as a potential place to see something really cool. So what happened to all the branches and wood I had to clear? Well, I made brush piles. I know that this is not feasible for everyone, but if you have the space and you want to enhance habitat for wildlife, brush piles are one of the easiest things to create. All you need is a bunch of sticks and branches, throw them in a big pile, and voila! The general rule of thumb for brush piles is to build them four to five feet high and about twice as wide. Placing large rocks or logs on the bottom helps keep it from matting down to the ground and keeps it open for other animals to get in. More large branches on top keep it from blowing apart in strong winds if that's a problem where you live. I have several around the woods here at Dispatch's HQ. Some are built over logs, some over old Christmas trees, and one even over an old pallet. Making brush piles was a natural way to deal with the several large trees and branches that came down in those storms. Locate your brush pile away from your house. That will give you the best odds of it being used while helping ensure that you don't get unwanted intruders. The best places for a brush pile are where there's little natural cover. Many animals will use them as cover. Smaller brush piles might be used by toads, turtles, birds, mice, and snakes. Larger ones by rabbits or other small mammals. Over time, they'll get taken over by vines like blackberries, bittersweet, and other berries, since they're a natural place for birds to come and, as one author put it, quote, while adding their songs to the air, gently perk up their tail and add seeds to the brush pile. Now that you've realized just how wild your backyard really is, you might get curious about the stuff you're seeing, whether it's plants, insects, birds, or animals. There's several apps that can help you identify things. My personal favorite is iNaturalist. I got introduced to it and subsequently hooked on iNaturalist when I worked at Fontenelle Forest. You can take a picture of a plant or insect or bird, even mushrooms, and it will give you possible identifications. You pick the one you think is the closest match, and then other iNaturalist users can view your ID and either agree or suggest something different. Many places have iNaturalist projects that let you contribute your observations for a specific area, whether it's a park, a city, or a geographical region. 
You can actually follow me, Dispatches from the Forest, on iNaturalist if you want and see what things I've been checking out. For birds, I like Merlin Bird ID and its companion app, eBird. Merlin helps you identify birds by recording their songs, taking a picture, or answering a few basic questions. It also tracks your life list, keeping a record of all the birds you've identified. Okay, Wild Wanderers, thanks again for listening to this episode of the Dispatches from the Forest podcast. You can follow Dispatches from the Forest on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok, and, of course, iNaturalist. If you want to support the podcast, consider heading over to the Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash dispatches from the forest and become a patron. Okay, what are you still listening to me for? I'm your host, Tim the Nature Nerd O'Hara, reminding you to download the iNaturalist and Merlin Bird ID apps, go outside, and get dirty. Dispatches from the Forest podcast is a production of Dispatches from the Forest and may not be used or rebroadcast whole or in part without express written permission.